Okay, welcome, welcome to all of you. Fantastic uh, to see a uh, full seminar room. Um, the gentleman was just saying to me that, uh, you know, well, there um, might be an issue about numbers. And I thought, oh, well, you know, there are just a few of us, you know, we'll make do. Um, <laughs> he said, no, it's likely to be the other way. Um, I'll just introduce myself and give you a brief outline of what I'd like to speak with you about. Um, and then, you know, we'll have some time at the end of what I have to say uh, to exchange ideas, to ask questions. And what I really am hoping we can do is to try and solve some problems or at least to explore some problems together. Um, so, as I said, you know, you are very welcome and I want you to feel um, very comfortable in here. Um, I'm here in my capacity as the qualities lead in an organisation called the National Mental Health Development Unit. And I'll say a bit about what the National Mental Health Development Unit is and put that all in context. But I've been pondering quite hard about what to say to you about who I am. And I've decided I'm going to do something slightly different and tell you a bit about who I am. Uh, because often uh, when we're in these roles at work, you know, the National Mental Health Development Unit is an executive agency of the Department of Health. And, you know, when we're in that kind of mode, we often uh, don't really disclose much about ourselves. And it's a kind of very official um, presentation. And, you know, it will be like that. But I'm going to um, prefix it with just a bit about who Harry Sewell is. Um, I come from a family of seven siblings, um, the last, and um, my parents live in Jamaica. And in about 71, uh, my parents became Christians. Um, I'm no longer Christian, so I'm not going to kind of <laughs> come at you from that perspective, and that might um, be sad news for some of you. But actually, um, the story is that uh, my parents became Christians, and we were in Jamaica at the time. And I basically uh, grew up in the church. My family, my network of friends were my church community. But more importantly, I developed a relationship with God in my own right um, during that course of time. Um, and it is historical. I later became a, a deacon in a um, Baptist church uh, in London when we moved here in 1981. And whilst I was involved in the church, uh, I read a lot around um, philosophy and um, kind of listened to uh, people you might know, Ravi Zacharias and World Ministries, and, you know, I was kind of very uh, involved in his analysis as an apologetic um, for Christianity, you know, so from a very philosophical point of view. Um, and you know, I read Nietzsche and Bertrand Russell um, and you know, was just kind of very interested in understanding different perspectives. Now, the reason why I tell you that is because when I talk about religion, faith and spirituality in the health service and in mental health in particular, my understanding I think is different to many people who might be working in policy, policy development or policy implementation in that I can understand both sides of the experience of staff members 
who may have a faith and feel obliged to behave in certain ways because for them that runs core to who they are or for people who are using our services who feel their faith is absolutely essential in defining who they are and that it's not possible to put one's faith to one side. And I think having that understanding helps me to, to think about what it might be like for our workforce and for people who use our services from a slightly different perspective. So I just wanted to kind of tell you that, um, to give you, uh, you know, a bit of perspective on who I am. And, um, you know, some of you might at the end rush and say, well, you know, why are you no longer involved and all of that? And we can have that conversation if you like, but that isn't um, why I'm here today. Okay, so back to the official presentation. Um, so as I say, what I'll do is I'll quickly talk about the National Mental Health Development Unit. I'll talk a bit about the policy um, and the legislative framework for how we deal with spirituality in the health service. Um, and then I shall throw out some questions around practice issues and try and engage you in thinking through some of those. Okay, the National Mental Health Development Unit is funded by the Department of Health and by the strategic health authorities to support the implementation of mental health policy nationally. So in short, the Department of Health develops the policy and we help inform it, but they develop the policy and we support the implementation in services both on the commissioning side of the NHS and also in terms of provision. And in fact, it's not just the NHS we work with, uh, other sectors as well, the independent sector market and also um, with social care. National Mental Health Development Unit has seven key work areas. They include things like mental health and well-being or improving access to psychological therapies, commissioning, etc. And w within the seven areas is what's called the Equalities Programme and um, Mental Health and Equalities is the umbrella for things like gender, sexuality, religion or belief, our race and ethnicity, um, and of course, as I said, you know, religion and belief is kind of part of our core responsibility. Um, what's worth pointing out, though, is that we end in um, 2011 in March, and you know that is part of the national review of non-governmental uh, departmental bodies um, which you'll be aware of from the spending review uh, and the requirement to make the savings so we basically go at the end of March um, so much of what we do now we do to quite a compacted timetable. For us to understand how we manage spirituality within the NHS, I think we need to understand the context in which we work. And before I do that, I should say, I keep talking about spirituality, religion and belief. Just to put that into context for you, the legislation that requires us to make a positive response to this area focuses on religion and belief. Um, and religion would be considered to be the kind of organised forms of religion and belief would be um, more relating to spirituality, and spirituality relates to the kind of essence of, of being, you know, people's relationship with something beyond themselves, something higher than themselves. So when we think about spirituality within mental health services, 
we aren't just thinking about people who would follow a particular religion. You know, it may be that someone has a pursuit in life that gives them calmness and kind of centers them, as we say. And you know, if that individual sort of finds that as a source of support and energy, then we would respect their right to find a place to, to go and express that element of spirituality. So the legislation does encapsulate all of that. Um, but we often talk about spirituality because there was a work program supported by the um, National Institute for Mental Health in England, um, which is the predecessor body for NMHDU, which I've been talking about, and um, that program focused on spirituality. Okay, so the current environment. We've got a coalition administration um, which came into being in April, uh, in May, sorry. And um, what that means is that some of the policies that have been driving the NHS have changed. So just prior to the election in May, uh, we had the national policy around mental health called New Horizons. And you know, one of the first things the administration said is, actually, we uh, are not going to be implementing New Horizons as it is. Um, so for many people in mental health, it was, well, yeah, we waited for a long time. That came out in December. And then by May, the, um, the, the, the screen was wiped blank, and we had to start again. Um, what we also know is that we've got this unprecedented time of austerity. Um, there are massive cuts. You'll have heard about them uh, in the spending review a couple of days ago. And that means there will be significant contraction in public sector spending. We also know in our environment that we've got the Equality Act, which came into force on the 8th of April this year. And the public sector duty to implement the Equality Act uh, comes into force in 2011, in April. And what that will do, it requires you know, public sector organisations to ensure that there's fairness in, and equality for people who fulfil particular protected characteristics. The environment has changed in that previous to the Equality Act, and in fact there was an Equality Act in um, 2006, but prior to that there was a focus on very separate approaches to equality. So I've kind of mentioned some of what were called equality strands, but now called protect protected characteristics, you know, around gender, race, etc. Um, now there is often a focus on a single equalities approach, which means that we try not to see individuals through a single lens. So often there'd be work programs and work streams that might say, well, you know, how do we respond to the needs of women or how do we respond to the needs of men or how do we respond to the needs of people from black and minority ethnic groups? And actually what we're saying is, you know, people aren't that compartmentalized that, you know, in my identity, I carry both my maleness and uh, my ethnicity and much more besides. Um, and there is a shift in terms of the focus around equalities on fairness and equality of opportunity as opposed to the kind of outcomes that were focused on before. And by that, I mean before, the, in fact in the last 18 months we've noticed the shift, the requirement was to try and find ways to create a level outcome 
for everybody. But there's an increase in recognition that certain groups by choice will pursue lifestyles that mean that actually you can't guarantee that their outcomes will be equal to everybody else's. They may um, choose to uh, adopt a different path. But actually what we should try and do is to ensure that they have the opportunity to pursue that equality. Um, and for those of us who have been around the equalities world for a while, it kind of feels like we've come full circle because in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, the, the parlance then was around equal opportunities. And then we kind of moved through, you know, anti-discriminatory practice into, you know, diversity and then kind of right back around to equal opportunities. Okay, um, so to kind of stick with the policy context, um, you know, I said that the New Horizons document was um, put to one side when the new administration came uh, into power. And, you know, what we know, know now is that uh, the minister uh, responsible for care service announced in September that there will be a new mental health strategy because there had been a period of time where people were saying, well, you know, what's going to happen? Will, be, will there be something new? Um, so we do know that. Um, and what was interesting in reading his announcement in the Community Care magazine online version was his focus on exclusion and poverty and the kind of relationship between those things and mental health. And that was quite an important signal about the emphasis that will be in um, the new mental health strategy because often there's a debate about, well, you know, to what extent are environmental factors an influence in terms of people's mental health problems or, you know, is there some kind of, you know, physiological cause for people having mental health problems and you know what the minister tried to do really is to say there's a very clear relationship with people's own experiences and I guess that's what we'll talk about when we discuss a bit later on. Um, what we know is that there's an emphasis on service user outcomes and one of the things we know is that the better the engagement our professionals have with people in our mental health services, the more likely it is that they'll have positive outcomes so I think this is a good lever around spirituality. Um, but what it also means is because we don't have the mental health strategy itself, we have no very clear statement yet around how equalities within mental health will be managed in future. So we still have a bit of a void in that area. So what we need to try and do is to try and understand the kind of messages we're getting from the coalition. Well, what we know is that um, the coalition agreement focused on fairness, um, so they've been trying to give a great emphasis to that. Um, and in Section 12 and uh, in Section 22 of the Coalition Agreement, there was a focus on equality. Um, and what we also know is that efficiency is to be achieved um, through really trying to deal with problems that have straddled the service for a long time. And often in mental health care, we have people who continue to either remain in services for long periods of time or who cycle in and out. And, you know, there is a view among certain um, academics and, you know, people who work in mental health that actually if we get better at understanding people's narratives and engaging with them, we can get more long-term solutions to the problems they deal with in mental health services. So I think that also is a lever for us. We also know that uh, in the National Health Service white paper, um, equity is uh, a key factor because it's in the title. And also 
you know, there's an emphasis in that document about fairness um, and the promotion of equality. So it seems pretty clear from what the coalition government is saying is that they wish for the equality agenda to be prioritised. And as I said, because we've moved away from focusing on individual aspects of equality, you know, the route to developing a response to spirituality and religion and belief is to be sure that equality is given priority and then that will give us some leverage. So, what are the conclusions from what I've just said? Well, equality is and will continue to be explicit that within the context of the Equality Act 2010, um, we'll need to be looking at the complexity of people's identities. So when we think about spirituality and religion, we'll need to also be thinking about other aspects of people's lives and how they see themselves and the discriminations they face. Um, and that and there is a conflict in this, that there is an emphasis in improved outcomes and if we can find a way to demonstrate that by engaging with people's spirituality we help to improve outcomes, then that would give some leverage for a focus in that um, area. I keep talking about this thing about the complexity of people's um, experiences and in terms of their identities. I want to talk about this term coined by someone called Kimberly Crenshaw um, in a paper in 1994 called Intersectionality. And what intersectionality really describes is the way in which various aspects of identity and discrimination intersect with each other. Um, and it's very important for us, as I've said before, that when we try and work with individuals that we don't become just linear focusing on their spirituality, but we try and understand them because we know, for example, that there's a clear relationship between BME groups and religions. So in the mental health services from 2005, there's been a national census of inpatients, and that tells us that people from black and minority ethnic groups are more likely to say they belong to a religious, religious group um, than you know, their white counterparts. So we know there's an issue around ethnicity and religion that can't be uncoupled because you know for some people from black and minority groups their culture is their religion and the two can't be separated. There are issues around um, religion and uh, gender and I know, you know people like Leila Ahmed write about you know the, the, the two and you know some of the perceptions that people outside of religions will have in relation to the role religion plays in, you know, some people might say misogyny, some people might say it's in sexist behaviour and intentions, but actually you know, for people inside of faith groups there might be a different perspective, but actually religion and, uh, and gender do raise some questions and we need to kind of think about that um, too as we try and support people to express their um, religious and faith views. Um, and then you can have the relationship between ethnicity, religion and gender and you know I know from my work in mental health services some of my colleagues will have struggled to understand how someone could be from a faith background but perhaps you know make them their wives feel subservient and you know people on the outside would say there seems to be a conflict um, and I think sometimes it's unless you get deeper into it um, you can understand that well, those conflicts may well be traditions um, that have developed as opposed to things that are in the source scriptures. Well, kind of coming to practice issues, because I think this is really the kind of crunch issue. 
There's been a study recently um, which looked at a number of community engagement um, projects. There are 93 of those nationally, and basically community groups were supported to work with communities, and this was part of a policy agenda set by the previous administration um, called the Delivering Race Equality um, Initiative. And one thing that um, came out of that study, which was published um, just a few weeks ago, um, highlighted that you know people from particular groups said very clearly that their religion, their belief, was kind of interwoven with their habits and their daily life. Now, I wanted to use that quote as a launch pad for thinking about what happens in our mental health services because there are some challenges in there. Um, so the slide after this raises four questions. But there, there are some guidance documents and there's a website which is available for staff working in the NHS to help them think through some of the issues for individuals who use services and for them to think through how they might respond most appropriately and it enables managers as well as frontline staff to work out appropriate responses for people um, who wish to express their faith. But actually... There was a hand at the back. Was that what you were going to say? Yeah, and that may well be on our website, on the NMHDU website. I've not kind of given you a comprehensive list. Uh, if you go to that website address, you'll see we've listed a whole range of documents, um, some research material, because obviously you know, staff won't only draw on you know, things published for the NHS by the Department of Health. They'll be drawing on you know, research, and some of that's listed on our website. So it wasn't intended to be a comprehensive list, but it was really just indicating that actually they don't operate in this arena in a void. There is some kind of support for staff. The point of doing this, though, is to say um, the studies like the community engagement um, report that I referred to earlier on and the Count Me and Census, and there are some unpublished uh, studies as well, indicate that people who use our services often say that their religion and their beliefs are not taken account of fully by our workforce and mental health services. And that's kind of the challenge for us. So I ask that question, why do we think staff struggle with exploring um, spirituality and religion? What is likely to lead to sustainable change uh, in practice? And then how might um, responding to spiritual needs save money because actually the agenda we're in, the thing that is going to give you any leverage is to be able to say this will make us more effective and therefore more efficient and um, then people will say well it might be worth investing in it in the current climate if you're going to do something just because it's nice it's probably not going to get you very far. So they're the kind of questions I wanted to throw out and I've got lots of ideas um, but I want to kind of hear some of your thoughts on this.
Okay. Um, there, there are a number of... Um, pop okay. Okay, we've got the roving mic. Um, you can have your voice heard. Sorry, I get that at church as well. <laughs> um, what evidence is the Department of Health use? Still can't hear. It is on. It's on, and they say that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go, right. What evidence is the Department of Health using that supports um, spirituality making a difference to people with mental health problems and them being part of that network? Okay, there are a number of um, studies and they tend to be qualitative um, kind of you know, reports from you know, people's own experiences um, that indicate that you know, um, spirituality aids them in their life. Um, you know, a number of research papers you know, also indicate that. Um, so the programme that we spoke about, the spirituality project, the National Spirituality Project that was led by um, a colleague and friend of mine, uh, Peter Gilbert, Professor Peter Gilbert, um, really drew on that kind of evidence to suggest that people say that their recovery is enhanced by you know, being able to express their faith. And you know, some of that, again, the research papers are captured on our website um, and you know, a number of documents uh, are, are on the website as well that will go into some depth around that. Dawn. Okay. Um, just picking up on, on the previous question, there, there is quite a lot of research, not necessarily from the UK, but there's some stuff from the States. From a, there's a, a group led by Professor Koenig, and he's actually done quite a lot of work, both around mental health and physical health, and they've done things like praying for people. And they've done it in what are called, you know, like the, the gold standard of research, which is a randomized controlled trial where they had people who didn't know they were being prayed for, who didn't have a faith, and they still got better. They still had better outcomes than other people. So that there is actually some more empirical evidence rather than, you know, I think sometimes qualitative research is seen as being a bit touchy-feely and not real hard science. But there's actually some more hard science than that. And there's actually some, more, some brain research as well, looking at... Um, um, neurobiological changes in people's brains in terms of um, spiritual engagement. So I can talk to you about some of the references if you want. We've got a questioner at the back. Okay. Hello. Um, yes, I'd just like to ask a question about psychiatrists and, and whether... Um, can you not hear me? Sorry. Um, I'd just uh, like to ask a, a question about psychiatrists and the power that they have within their role in the medical model. And um, I'd like to know if there's been done, any, uh, any research has been done on whether, how many psychiatrists do have a faith, whether it be um, of uh, Christianity, Muslim or, uh, or the uh, Jewish faith and whether they are allowed um, to uh, express that within their psychiatric profession when they're dealing with clients. Okay. Uh, th there will have been research, and I don't know off the top of my head. Big one? If it comes to my session this afternoon, I'll give them the answers. Okay. <laughs> and the name of your session, what's the title of it? It's the workshop after this one. Right, yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So you'll get yeah. some answers. So yeah, um, but there is a question, isn't there, about whether or not it is legitimate for people to express their faith in the workplace? And in fact, 
individuals make informed decisions about when and how they express their faith. Now, one of the challenges we have is that for certain, I'll make it very specific, in inpatient areas on occasions, there will be nurses who will feel, because their faith is so core to them, that they have to um, try and proselytize and try and you know, witness to people on the wards. And actually, that is considered to be inappropriate practice because you know, they're not mandated to do that. Now, for some people, as I say, it fundamentally goes to the core of who they are, that if they see something that they feel is kind of wrong or sinful or you know, is unhelpful for an individual, they feel obliged because of their faith to try and speak to that. And actually, so they, they have no mandate. And yeah. you know, if an organization wished to, they can actually take out disciplinary um, procedures against them. But yes, I agree entirely that they shouldn't be uh, proselytizing. But if a person asks them about their, their religious uh, beliefs and, uh, and their faith, I think they have every right to, uh, to express that to, the, to that person. If they are a genuine Christian, it will be coming through anyway, through their nursing skills as well. But they shouldn't be condemned if they, you, you know, if they talk to a client about Christ. No, and um, it's kind of an inch, which is why I say why might staff struggle? Um, in fact, the, the challenge is to what extent do we bring ourselves into the workplace? And you know, years ago there was a very clear view that you maintain this kind of professional boundary, yeah. and what that created was an experience of people using services saying, "I feel as though I'm talking to machines." because nobody's giving anything of themselves. Yeah. And one of the most powerful things that will change our mental health services is to work with people's narratives. And part of what it requires, what we mean by that is, you know, people's stories about how they got to where they are. You know, people end up in, our, in psychiatry. And it isn't just that they had some kind of time bomb chemical time bomb in their body which just kind of suddenly went off and they broke down. People come with stories about who they are and that will often be part of their spirituality or their faith. Yeah. Um, and interacting with the workforce, then they'd like to talk to people who can recognize that and speak with an informed voice about that. And that's what we need to get is this greater engagement. And it may mean, therefore, that someone you know, in the workforce does talk about their own experience as well. And that needs to be seen as more legitimate, but it's taking time for us to get there. If I could just address that first question. Um, unlike our friend at the, sorry. Um, unlike our friend at the back, I, I, I don't think being a Christian actually makes you a better nurse, particularly. Um, I, I, I know very many fine nurses and doctors uh, who don't profess Christian faith. Having said that, um, I do know that one of the great struggles with NHS staff in, in exploring spirituality and religion with patients is because they lack the confidence to handle the language of religion and spirituality, uh, particularly if they don't come from a faith community background or particular faith belief themselves, then it, it becomes a caution in their own minds not to dwell on these kind of subjects because the patient may well start to talk about things that they don't understand as a member of staff mm. And so that confidence falls. The way we tackle it in our trust is actually to upskill, particularly the nurses, in the language of spirituality and, and religion and, and mental health. And we're finding positive results from that. Oh, great. Good. I have a question at the front, and then we've got a few hands going up now. 
Sorry, I've got a bit of a croaky voice, but I hope you can hear me. <clears throat> I just wanted to pick up on what you said about sharing story with people and sharing something of who we are as people with those that we help. I work with people with eating disorders on a one-to-one -one basis, and some of my clients find it very helpful if I may be a bit more open about myself and show that I'm identifying with them, but others actually find that a barrier. And I actually found myself in a position where I had to see my boss and say, you shouldn't be saying, I don't know so much about yourself. I don't actually say a lot about myself, but I do like to try and identify. So I don't know if you've got any comment on that. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Um, the, the, the issue about self-identification is, are you taking someone else's space? Um, you know, that's kind of you know, one of the key questions. So, you know, if you've got a 50-minute you know, session, are you going to be you know, spending 50 minutes of that saying, oh, yeah, you know, that happened to me as well? Um, and are you actually, in a sense, contaminating the therapeutic relationship? So that's one of the kind of key questions. Um, when we talk about self-disclosure, of course, you know, we're not suggesting that you kind of start exploring real private things about yourself and trying to, you know, say, look, I'm like you. But one of the things we are talking about is saying, I recognise and I understand that, you know, that my ability to empathise comes from the fact that I too have had experiences and I don't need to kind of go into the detail of it. But you know, it's a bit like, you know, for those of you who've got children, it's a bit like you know, people say, oh, you know, I can't believe you kind of let your kids do that. And they kind of think, yeah, I can just tell you've never had kids because you're kind of speaking from this kind of really uninformed position. And it's just sometimes you kind of think, okay, yeah, this person's lived a bit. Um, and, you know, if we can get that across, that can be useful without us going into the gory details. We've got laser hands going up now. Um, there was one here, then there was someone at the back. So I know that order, and then we've got two more, which I'll... Hello, thank you. Um, you were saying a few things a little <coughs> while ago. I just want to trickle in a few things together. Um, one of the things you were talking about was the, uh, the form formulation and the way that policy is made and the research and the evidence, etc. Um, I was just wondering who the contributors are and do you have a broad spread of contributors, or not you personally, but you know the people who are forming the policy and thinking the things through? And therefore, do you have an element of the, the religions we've been talking about here today um, it would seem a good idea to me if you want to understand the language um, slightly more deeply then it would be a good idea to like we've, we've just all come from the conference next door and I'm sure we've all picked up very much on the significance of the way things were being said the second thing is looking at the rationale of people with mental health issues which is tragic isn't it in, in any country it doesn't matter who you are um, it seems to me you're trying to make an effort um, from a legal point of view or from the provision point of view as a, as a government, as a country. Um, and it would seem that there is a practical application in that um, religion does seem to have an advantage for people who are going through some of these difficulties, whatever they are. Um, now, I, it just struck me, because I'm, I'm not a professional, um, I'm a carer, and I'm a Christian. So it seems to me we might be asking ourselves, does, can, so, so the outcome is, uh, can God actually make a difference to the management, help, care um, of the people we're talking about? And to, to what extent can you involve his help in, um, 
in getting that help and understanding what they're trying to say. Because the difference between a practical help of somebody who's suffering mentally and a spiritual help, from what I've been hearing in the, the earlier thing, uh, are two separate things. And that's why nurses, I think, who are Christians, can come alongside and, mm. and perhaps help in a, an added way. Mm. Sorry, there's a lot in that, and I do apologise, but those are some of the things that I've picked up on what you've been saying. Okay, I'll, I'll be really, really quick because I want to give other people a chance to, to come in. One of the key questions you might you know, ask yourself about mental health and what we do is, what makes someone, I'm going to use this kind of colloquial term, mad? How do we decide whether someone's mad or not? It's, an answer, it's a, a straight question. How do we do that? What makes you think someone else is mad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and often we do that by thinking these behaviours are unusual. Um, and in fact, psychiatry started from this kind of concept. A guy called Jaspers developed this thing of ununderstandability that, you know, if people are doing and behaving, doing things and behaving certain ways and saying things that you just can't understand then you start immediately to think maybe there's something wrong um, with them in terms of their mental health problems. Now, if you think about what that means for people who are unfamiliar with religious expression or an expression of a faith, um, you can kind of see it can immediately get into the territory of what is ununderstandable. It just seems, and you know, that's kind of one of the big issues about why is it that my staff might struggle is because in services it's easy to default into seeing religious expression as a symptom of someone's psychosis as opposed to just being part of their own expressions as to who they are. So that's a kind of a deep area, but I wanted to throw that in. I'll take um, a couple more questions before I run out of time. So after um, that told gentleman, to hold the it woman like at this. the back was... <laughs> um, I'm uh, Andrew Pounce, uh, independent advocate for people who have autism, Asperger's syndromes and associated conditions. Um, I'm struck by uh, what you're saying and um, a couple of comments really. One is, you know, where is the respect for the choice of the individual who does believe those things in the context of the policies that you've presented today? Um, secondly, is, is there not a secularisation of health professionals going on in, in uh, the workplace? And are those, is, is it not the um, human right of the individual to make the choice of to what, how they want to express their faith and their belief? And is not what you're saying um, contradicting that for certain people. And my whole point, to put it in context, is you cannot put spirituality of any faith and any religion into a box because it permeates every aspect of life. And whether that's in the workplace, in the home, or on holiday, or in a conference, you can't put it in a box. So there needs to be, um, uh, well, I forget the uh, term you use, but interrelational, okay, yeah. intermixing of, of uh, those different compartmental aspects of what you're saying. Okay, I agree with you, and what I'd say is this, by summarising all of what I've said, is all of the evidence tells you that if you shut down people's expression of who they are, it's really damaging to their mental health. 
whatever aspect of them that is, whether it's their ethnicity, their gender, the fact that they've been sexually abused, or the fact that actually they have a faith, if you shut it down, it's bad for their mental health. That's what all the evidence tells you. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. So, so, sorry, before we carry on, someone was saying shut it down. Well, all right, did you understand my language about if you shut it down? If you don't give people the freedom to express who they are in their entirety, it's bad. It's not even just it's not helpful. It is actually bad for people's mental health. It is. I, I totally agree with you in that, that it takes two to tango. And there's two, two sides. Uh, we're not into sides in this. There's two... Um, people involved in a particular relationship. They both have a need to express their spirituality. And should that not be one of respect rather than restraint? All right, OK. So your question is, should the workforce be free to express their faith? That's your question. OK, I'll ponder that. I want to take the question at the back. Yeah, good afternoon. Sorry, very, very quickly. Um, one of the things that I found working in the mental health area in London that there's a very thin line between spirituality and mental health and they tend to kind of overlap and one of the things that I find when people are in crisis that they're very much in touch with spirituality and then what happens is, is that when you're making that assessment it's very difficult to understand whether they're actually suffering from a psychosis or whether they're just in that kind of trance in terms of their spirituality particularly when they've got a very good understanding of the Bible and that they can defend their behavior with reference points of the Bible because that's something that you don't necessarily argue with. So sometimes um, what I'm saying is that you tread a very, very thin line and it is, it is very, very difficult to make that assessment sometimes of whether that person is actually suffering from a diag diagnosis of mental illness or whether they are in some type of spirituality, medication, or, some, or mental health. Particularly when they said also that they, they tell you that they don't need to comply with medication because that is enshrined also with reference points in the Bible. It's just more of a comment, really. Yeah. Observation. Um, it's, if you're interested in that kind of debate, it's worth going to Together, which is a national charity, and look at their website. One of the things that Together says is... Actually, if this is helpful for people, as long as it's not causing them harm, we feel like people should have the right to find their own solutions to dealing with their mental health problems. It's just a really, I mean, really interesting debate. And the kind of question about our mental health services is, actually, are people finding their own solutions? And you know, it might cause discomfort for the service, but actually, is it really damaging this individual or is it part of their way of coping? Um, I together. Hi, um, like my colleague from here, I work with um, a charity um, that uh, advocates for the rights of people learning, with learning disabilities and special needs. Um, it's a secular organization, but outside that I've got a friend who's got learning disabilities and mental, experiences mental health distress. For the last nine years he's been in a, a home, a care home uh, uh, we care provided by the local authority, and he hasn't been allowed to listen to his Christian music because it sends him high. And this is exactly what they've been saying. Um, recently, a Christian home um, have offered him a space somewhere, uh, somewhere else, and I'm really concerned about your last question there, about how might responding to spiritual needs save money in real terms. 
because the local authority said, no, you can't go and practice your faith in another place because we don't have the money. So really, they don't actually support him to practice his faith where he is because he sent him high, but he, they don't actually send, allow him to go and practice his faith in a, a Christian home because they don't have, the local authority hasn't got the money. So my question is, um, has the Equality Bill got any teeth to it in terms of faith, and how can we actually use it to support people who need a voice? Thank you. It does have teeth, um, and within the NHS there is an equality um, and diversity system that's being developed so that services will be monitored on the extent to which they meet the requirements of the Equality Act. And if people from faith groups repeatedly say, A, we feel that our needs aren't taken into account, and B, that we feel we have poor experiences and we are discriminated against, then that provider of mental health services will be required to correct what they do so that they don't kind of continue to perpetuate that inequality. So it will have teeth. The question is, you know, that requires monitoring and in this kind of austere climate, to what extent will people be focusing on that in monitoring? But it it should have teeth. We had someone, um, this gentleman who's been waiting for quite a while, and then we're going to have to wrap up, I I think. Folks, my name is Peter Hogg. 14 years ago, I was diagnosed with manic depression. The main point I wanted to make was that at the time I was being treated, I was on quite a cocktail of drugs actually, probably probably 10, and um, my CPNs felt that at the time of the diagnosis, June 1996, I, I went mad actually, I went, went up, I went charged up New Street and, uh, with, with a Scottish flag on my back, trying to be William Wallace uh, and, and, and um, shouting, Scotland the brave, watch out for the mad women of hell fell off a wall and then uh, they all thought that I would never work but all I want to say to you folks being part of a faith community and having people praying for you works 18 months after the diagnosis I've continued to work in full time secular employment and although being on shifts does play havoc with your condition having that regular contact with your CPNs and the prayer and, and contact with your Christian friends for fellowship, you know, does help and you can make a positive contribution to society. Thank you. We are going to have to wrap up to... Um, give uh, credit to you know, other people who will be running their workshops, etc. So um, we'll need to do that. By way of closure, um, I just wanted to say um, two or three things. The first is, all we did was to skim the surface. There are some big debates to be had. Um, there's a book called Post-Psychiatry by Phil Thomas and Pat Bracken. Um, and one of the things that that book does, it raises this question about the usefulness of the very rigid models we have around psychiatry. Um, so that's kind of one of the first things I'll kind of leave you with. It's to kind of think about the models of psychiatry we have and you know, how people explain what goes on in the world. Because the predominant model we have is that you have well people and you've got people with mental illness and that something happens that triggers people to move from being sane to being insane. And actually, the world is a bit more complicated than that. 
um, and that people's experiences drive that as much as other things. Um, and you know, the, the, there are books like um, Doctrine of the Mind by Richard Bentall that also kind of raises questions about the models of psychiatry we use. So I wanted to um, kind of just suggest you look at some of that. The second thing is to pick up this theme that's coming up, is about how do people of faith in the workforce manage their own belief systems as they deliver their contractual obligations. And I make this point is that people, they take up employment and they effectively sign a contract with their employer that they will comply with the policies. Um, and if we have questions about the policies of organizations, um, then we should be trying to change the policies rather than seeking to put individuals who have already signed a contract of compliance in a difficult position. So if you have, you know, if there's anything you take away from this, yeah, it is frustrating for people who feel they're hemmed in, but actually if they work in an environment where that's the nature of the beast, they've signed a contract, they need to comply. What we need to do is to advocate, I think, more vociferously for a, a, a more open approach to contracts of employment that allow for some kind of expression of who we are. Um, and the final thing is to kind of go back to the point about narratives. And you know, I've said it two or three times, the evidence is clear for all marginalized groups that if you fail to enable them to express who they are, it is very poor for their mental health. Um, and there's a lot of evidence around that. And what we need to do is to work with our services to really understand how narratives play an important role in bringing about sustained improvements in mental health. And that's the lever for change. That was supposed to be my wrap-up so people could go. Yeah. <laughs>